Three, two, one. <coughs> What's good, everybody? And happy homecoming to all my Morganites. This is your boy, Devin Ashby, SKA Play-by-Play. And the Play-by-Play analysis would like to present a very special project in honor of the school we all love so dearly, the illustrious Morgan State University. This is We Are the Bears, and we're coming home. Chapter 1. Charm City. Play-by-play analysis, Devin Nashby on the mic, so you know it's hella lit, better plug your headphones in, on Apple Podcasts, and we up on Spotify, on Anchor 2, no parachute, we so fly, we talking sports and music, what's the newest, and that culture, better stream, yeah you better tune in, it ain't gon' cost ya, we talking sports and music, what's the newest, got exclusives, yeah we do this play-by-play, follow the page, eh? if you don't know, don't worry about it. That's me on December 7, 2019, the day that I became a member of the Alpha Sigma chapter of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, shouting out my alma mater. I graduated from Morgan State University in May 2019, and I've carried the experiences, knowledge, lessons learned, and friendships gained with me ever since. There aren't nearly enough words to explain just how valuable those five years at Morgan were for me, so I recruited a handful of friends, classmates, mentors, and fellow alumni to tell their Morgan stories as well. But to truly understand the story of Morgan State University is to understand the city in which it resides. A historically black college with over 7,700 enrollees, Morgan sits on the corner of 1700 East Cold Spring Lane in Baltimore, a black school in an even blacker city and one of America's premier cultural hotspots. It reminds me so much more of like a New Orleans and how oh, wow. New Orleans is particularly, like when you meet somebody from New Orleans, you know. You can see it in their spirit, in their culture, in their mm-hmm. drive. And I feel the same way about Baltimore. Um, on the show, I do, uh, we do I love be- a segment called I Love Being Black. Mm-hmm. And we talk about people that are from Baltimore or did the first thing, like the first whatever, right. in Baltimore. And I mean, to think that I've been on since March and I'm still finding people from Baltimore or that have done things in, for the first time in Baltimore is mind-blowing to me. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've done somebody from Baltimore or, you know, of the sort almost every day since March. And it's October. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm Tyler B. I graduated in December 2020 with my degree, my bachelor's in multimedia journalism. And I'm a current graduate student right back in the School of Global Journalism and Communication, getting my degree in global journalism and communication. Um, I was a part of NCNW, the National Council of Negro Women, the Lunch Table Blog Show, the Caribbean Student Association, the Latino Student Association, and so much more. But now I am 
the co-host of WEAA 88.9 FM's Good Morning Baltimore, right here on Morgan's campus. But Baltimore is also a city with the well-documented struggles regarding race. It was the location of some of the earliest fighting in the Civil War, and in 1952, two years before the historic Brown versus Board Supreme Court case, Baltimore became the first city below the Mason-Dixon line to desegregate public schools with the integration of Baltimore Polytechnic Institute. Morgan State's struggles and contributions to the city's civil rights history are also well documented. In 1918, the university received fierce opposition from the all-white Laurelville community to build a new central academic building in what is now the present-day site. Outraged that a Negro college had been approved to build on the nearby Ivy Mill property, Lauraville unsuccessfully attempted to sue in circuit court, then failed their appeal in the State Court of Appeals after it was ruled that the construction wouldn't be deemed a public nuisance. The community still resisted, holding mass demonstrations and even making threats. But Morgan State proceeded with their expansion, erecting the building later to be named Carnegie Hall just a year later. It's the history of which we were founded upon. You know, Morgan, at, that, at the location that it is now, you know, East Cold Spring, um, we, you know, we always had to fight for our rights to be, to be in that campus, to be in that space, because the neighborhood didn't want them there. I mean, I, you know, you have to look back at some of the um, local, like maybe the Sun articles back in the day and look at how, look at the language they use when the students of Morgan State College or Morgan, you know, Morgan College or wherever the name was back then were, you know, were finally getting to that, that part of uh, that space and, you know, the language they were using to um, describe the students attending Morgan State College um, at that time, uh, before it became a university, you, you know, it's in our history. We've always had to fight back. Now, our good friends down at North Carolina A&T in Greensboro will tell you that they were the first to do the lunch counter sit-ins. But there's strong evidence that suggests it was actually the students of Morgan State who organized the first student-led sit-ins in the 1950s at Reed's Drugstore. And after two years of demonstrations, the store's owners opened their counters to blacks in 1955, eight years before the Greensboro Four. And it's like, you know, we're the first school to do one of these sit-ins. We were the first ones to do it. We were the first school to do it. Yeah, they think um, it's North Carolina A&T, and it's not. We were the first school to do it. In March 1959, it was once again students from Morgan State who staged sit-ins at a segregated ice cream parlor called Arundel, forcing them to eventually integrate as well. And in 1963, Morgan students were among the first to use mass incarceration as a desegregation tool, using the pressure of mass arrest to force the integration of the Northwood Theater. I know for me, bro, on my, you know you have a hard day at Morgan. You'd be like, you know what? I'm never coming back here. I'll drop every class tonight. I really want somebody to try me. But in the back of my head, I would like be walking around on campus and I would see those bricks and I would see people's names on them and I would look at these buildings and I'm like, you know what? If they could do it, so can I. My name is Justice Hawkins. I graduated in the fall of 2020, pandemic class, you know. While I was at Morgan, I was a part of the National Association of Black Journalists. I was in the uh, Public Relations Society of America Club. I was a resident assistant uh, for Thurgood Marshall Apartment Complex. Worked the barricades for a semester. That was fun. Uh, that's probably about it. Justice Hawkins embodies the spirit of activism at Morgan State like few other students. A transfer student from PG Community College, Justice wasn't really feeling the lack of love that transfer students received, 
So he went to the vice president's office to make his gripes known. At the time, Morgan didn't have much in the vein for like transfer students in the sense of like open house and like all those different kind of things they do to like entice freshmen. So one thing I really do love about Morgan, um, I didn't like that. I, I didn't I have a lot of family who went to Morgan State University and they'd always like tell me about these stories like the Promethean walk and freshman weekend, all these kind of things that kind of get you like very intertwined in campus culture. And when you're a transfer student, my experience you're just kind of there. Like, there's no kind of like transfer student week or transfer day. So, like I was saying, what I do love about Morgan, um, I went right to the vice president's office, Dr. Kevin Banks, and I was just sharing with him, you know, my experience as a transfer student, you know, how I feel like it could be improved upon. And he listened with like open arm, open open arms. What the heck? He listened with like open ears and everything, uh, Devin, mm-hmm. and. He, um, I remember when I graduated, I also went to him for a post-graduation kind of interview. And he was just telling me, he was like, you know, don't, never forget, like, you know, your voice is important. Because of you, we're changing the way that we're incorporating transfer students to our campus and giving them experience that's like, you know, something they can remember. And I tell you, that was one of the best feelings ever. Like, to sit down with the vice president of the university, to actually have them listen to you, not only listen, but then actually take action into taking onto on your behalf on the behalf of other future students. It really means a lot. In 1947, one of the earliest instances of mass social demonstrations by Morgan State students took place in the state capital of Annapolis when several hundred Morganites rallied to raise awareness for equitable state funding. That fight would continue for more than 70 years including a massive joint lawsuit filed by representatives of all four of the state's HBCUs. In March 2021, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan finally signed legislation gifting $577 million to the state's black schools over the next decade. It's a fight that Justice saw up close and personal thanks to his own involvement in rallies and protests. I remember there's this organization on campus called Black Girls Vote. And I think at the time I was meeting with one of their members and they were discussing um, just about this lawsuit that's been going on, I believe. It's been going on for over 20 years at that time, uh, maybe even 30, but it was, it's was it been going on for a long time. And I remember meeting up with them and talking about it and planning all these different things. And we have these meetings in the library. Then alumni will come, to, come and speak to us or like um, elders who were like, you know, from that actual time, I guess, like when the lawsuit actually started, just kind of like empowering, empowering us and encouraging us to use our voices, use our platforms, so we can create change in a way that they probably couldn't have back then due to like, you know, social media and technology. And it was just a wonderful moment, man. I tell you, I remember like it was yesterday, like I woke up and I was looked out my window and it started snowing. And it was November, and I was like, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen today, but something's going to shake. Because we've been playing, like, you know, this, like, you know, rally across the campus to kind of inform everyone and get them, like, you know, up to speed, hyped up, slash, you know, protest. But, um, you know, you never really know how things are going to go. So, Devin, I looked out the window, and it was snowing. I said, oh, my Lord. 
snowing and rallying across the campus. And in my head, I was like, I think classes have been canceled that day too. And I was like, yo, people are not going to want to get out of their beds for this. I know it. They are going to be in their beds, sleeping, going to the refact all day, chilling, watching Netflix. But I was just like, you know, those, those thoughts and those fears you have concerning will people show up or anything doesn't concern you. You know what you want to do. So go out there and do it. So I put on like my overcoat, Morgan sweatshirt, dress shoes, I felt like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. That's probably, like, very, like, sacrilegious to say. But I just felt like, in that moment, bro, I just felt, like, so aligned. Like, I felt like, yo, this is a moment. This is a moment where, like, people are going to feel change. And I just, I mean, like, you know me. I'm not very, I'm, I'm, like, talkative somewhat, but, like, I'm not very boisterous. I don't think I've ever been that loud on campus since. Like, just screaming to that microphone, going back and forth, like, rallying people. Like, because we started from, we started from kind of, like, in between the library and and on the student center. And it was just, like, three of my friends who all kind of lived around Thurgood. And I'm like, yo, we can't walk up to everybody being dry. We got to be hyped up. So I was like, everyone started doing, you know, the H in front of my B, B in front of my C. Yeah. And I had everyone, like, lead it off. And, like, you know, from that, just keep going. We, like, pass it off. So by the time we got to, like, the old student center, which I think is McKeldin, man, I was, man, I was hotter than a summer in Mississippi, okay? I was, I was hot. I was ready. I was like, we got this, y'all. We are going to do it today. I look over, and it's like, people I've probably just seen in class and never seen it all Man, people had created signs. This lady came up to me, started shaking my hand. She was like, thank you so much for doing this today. You know, I came all the way here from Delaware just to be a part of this. And I was like, did you say Delaware? In the snow? And of course, I was like, you know, please, don't. I'm not the person you should be thanking. The the black women over here are the ones why we're really all here. Because I would have been in the refact today eating my grilled cheese and soup, too. Like, I'm going to keep it a buck with you. I remember, like, we got to the student center, and I turned around. Keep in mind, I just got here. I don't really know anybody like that. Devin, I looked around. I turned around, and Mr. Morgan was there, and the SGA president, and all these people who I just walked around with every day that's there looking at me like, now what? What are we going to do now? And I'm like, like, and, like, part of me was like, it was like, man, this is what this is what everyone loves about this place, man. This is this moment, this feeling, this opportunity to create change. It truly lives here. And if you can just get the people together, man, it's such a beautiful place to be. We have a history on that campus of speaking up at any HBCU. If you see something wrong, if you feel so your, your university's not doing enough to serve you in your community, speak up. Because it's not just there for you know, we're not just here to talk about the positives and everything of that nature, but you should always speak up and speak out because that's that's what our universities are teaching us to do. So, you know, I don't want everybody to think that, you know, we're ignoring, you know, issues, but I'm just saying, you know, if you see something, speak up, speak out, and call it out for what it is. Baltimore is a city unlike any other. Living there for five years and witnessing some of the stark differences from neighborhood to neighborhood was certainly a culture shock for me and plenty of others. That stark difference between like money and poverty here was by design. Like 
I mean, Baltimore's history being like a port for freed slaves and then having the first civil rights sit in here and, you know, Baltimore being like a civil rights capital in this nation, if you will, like, yeah, this would be somewhere where, you know, white folks would put more effort into making things seem hopeless. Like, that makes sense. Same thing with D.C., like, you're going to you're going to do things in places to make people feel hopeless where the people are the backbone of movements. My name is Joy Barnes. I graduated class in 2018. I honestly I did a lot of work. In. <laughs> so, um I think the most notable ones National Council of Negro Women, um Student Government Association and uh MSU poet. I consider Joy to be one of my closest friends I've met at Morgan. I met her online the week before freshmen arrived on campus in the fall of 2014, and we've been tight ever since. But the one thing about her, whether she's the vice president of SGA, hosting open mic events for MSU poets, or working in the field of public health, she's always been an advocate for the people. I learned this pretty quickly during my freshman year, at a time when the city of Baltimore and the nation as a whole will collectively explode. Breaking news tonight, chaos erupting on the streets of Missouri. The grand jury finding no probable cause to indict Officer Darren Wilson in the death of an unarmed teenager, Michael Brown. Grand jury deliberated over two days, making their final decision. They determined that no probable cause exists to file any charge against Officer Wilson and returned a no true bill on each of the five indictments. In August 2014, 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed by a white police officer, despite being unarmed. But a grand jury declined to bring up the officer, Darren Wilson, on any charges, sparking fierce backlash and intense riots and protests in, the, in Brown's hometown of Ferguson, Missouri, as well as around the country and even other parts of the world. More than 800 miles away in Baltimore, thousands of people took to the streets to march, including students from Morgan State. Joy myself, and another friend, Jeremy, were among those that marched that day. I have so many videos of that, um, so many moments of that. Um, it was an amazing time to be at Morgan State um, during that time, just to see how people moved and supported what was going on. I mean, at that time, we figured out how significant and important like community was and giving back to the city. Because when you're a student, it's easy to come from somewhere outside of Baltimore. And then, you know, you stay isolated to this campus community, but Baltimore, Morgan State is just one small part of a greater city, a greater dynamic. Um, and so for me personally, being on campus in that moment, I knew I had to figure out what can I do? What can the people that I'm connected to, how can we give back to the city? from our place as students who might just be inhabiting this kind of sheltered bubble. Um, so there was so much going on with the guards, like getting food out to communities, building places where young people can feel safe. Um, there were so many different protests going on and I went to many of those with, you know, my ride or die homie Joy. And the thing about Joy, Joy knows how to contextualize things and she knows how to bring it back to history. So the things that she was able to do was regards like reaching out to alumni who were part of the 90s protests. She was very strong on 
making sure like we weren't just doing anything without connecting to the past or connecting to the roots of the community. She was always a grassroots leader. Yeah. So I think that her influence on me during that moment and bridging me to several things in the group and to the several things in the city, um, that made me feel even more connected. I guess part, that's part of the reason why I'm still here because I gained ties that really made me so close to Baltimore. Even though I lived here before, you know, just those ties built during that time have sustained my being here, for sure. That protest brought out a lot of different people that it probably normally wouldn't have under different circumstances. One of those people was Benjamin McKnight, a close friend and one of my former editors at the school newspaper, the MSU spokesman. He remembers that day extremely vividly but not just for the protest. My name is Benjamin McKnight III. I'm a class of 2017 graduate of Morgan State University with a degree in multimedia journalism. Uh, while I was at Morgan, I was also a member of ROTC, so I commissioned into the United States Army Reserves. Um, I was a part of the student newspaper, including two years as the editor-in-chief of the MSC spokesman. I'm a member of the National Society of Persian Rifles, a pledge at Company J8, which is based at Morgan State University. Morgan State University Association of Black Journalists, in which at one point I was Mr. MSUADJ. That afternoon, we had class for uh, ROTC. And our instructor, he, we, he didn't legitimately host class. What he ended up doing was just talking to us. And it was all centered around our emotions about that day, about what was going on, and about what life is going to be for us as we move forward in adulthood and being Black folks in this country, and especially being Black soldiers in this country or Black officers in this country. And kind of just him getting a feel for where we were at mentally and giving us all the words of encouragement that he could um, and leaning on some of his prior experiences, uh, both in and out of uniform. And I definitely cried that day. Because I knew that that's not, a, that's not something that would have happened if I had been down York Road over at Towson. It would have just been a normal class. We would have been going on about our business. And I would have been left to deal with those emotions either by myself or just to select few people that I might have started to trust in the class. And I, I don't even know if I would have had that yet. Like, I mean, I had friends outside of the school, but I don't... I wouldn't have had that experience if I wasn't at Morgan. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have had an instructor who was so focused on ensuring that our success did not come at the detriment of our mental health. Even my other friend and mentor, Tramon Lucas, put aside his journalism duties for one day to march alongside his fellow classmates and colleagues. And... You know, when I was a part of that Mike Brown protest, and I was a journalism student, and, you know, I will get a lot of flack for it to this day, um, seven years later. It was November 2014. We should have easily, as journalism students, been covering it. And I don't know. At that time, I was 20 years old, and it impacted me in a way in which I was like, this is just bigger than my, you know, chosen career field. It was important that, you know, yeah, I mean, I had a camera, but, you know, I honestly, I made a decision to join in. And, you know, it at that time, it, it felt like the right decision. Do I regret it? No. I mean, because I'm right. a journalist now and I'm doing a damn good job, thank the Lord. But, you know, at 20 years old, 
and you know seeing an 18 year old an 18 year old kid you know laying in the street the way mike brown was and, and at that time that was 2014. i started college in 2012 months after trayvon martin was gunned down right was followed and you know gunned down i mean that's what happened and uh tamir rice and you know, Freddie Gray happened a year after Mike Brown um, in 2015 here in Baltimore. And, you know, it, it was, there were just so many things that happened while we were in college um, that just impacted us. And we felt like as students, we could not stay silent on that. My name is Trayvon Lucas. I graduated uh, class of 2017, um, winter 2017. Uh, I was a part of the MSU spokesman. Um, MSU ABJ, which is the Morgan chapter uh, uh, of the National Association of Black Journalists, um, Bear TV, basically anything journalism related, I was a part of it. We didn't know each other at the time, but I consider Trey to be like an older brother to me now. He's one of the editors I worked under at the school's newspaper, the MSU Spokesman, and someone who really helped shape my storytelling abilities. The Michael Brown shooting really hit home for him, but even that couldn't compare it to the events that would unfold just one year later in his own backyard. Baltimore is burning. After a day of looting and rioters clashing violently with police, tonight a community center in flames lights up the city. The riots breaking out on the same day Freddie Gray's family put their loved one to rest. The suspect who was arrested put in a police van in leg irons, no seatbelt, as that van answered several other calls, suffering a spinal cord injury and later dying while in police custody. Police cruisers and police vans torched too, and the images of that group climbing atop a patrol car, smashing in the roof and the windows. Tonight, more than 20 police officers injured. Rioters armed with gas masks, appearing ready for a fight. The police force under siege, at least 15 officers injured. The mayor taking to the streets tonight to condemn those responsible. 247 arrests, 144 cars set on fire, and 15 buildings destroyed. Six Baltimore officers have been suspended with pay while the police carry out a criminal investigation. Brian H. Waters, class of 2013, spring 2013. I was a broadcast and integrated media major. The last class before it became the School of Global Journalism. I was in Connecticut. I was in Bristol. I'll never forget that day, me and my wife and kids had went to New Jersey that day to see, um, celebrate one of my friends who had not too long left ESPN, his son's first birthday. So as we got back home, like normal, I had um, the MLB package. Right. So I would turn on the Orioles game. So I turned on the Orioles game. The game was on. They told people, just to let y'all know, don't leave just yet. And I'm, you know, I'm a faith-based person. The Orioles were winning. And then all of a sudden, the Red Sox tied the game. So that kept people in the stadium for the most part. And then David Lowe hits a home run in extra innings. And by the time he hit the home run, it was like enough time for whatever was going on where fans could leave safely. And I remember, you know, after that happened, I'm like, okay, well, let me kind of do some more research. Well, that Monday when the big riots happened, I remember seeing on Instagram, Somebody put purge at three o'clock. And then by the time I got to work that day, I remember being in the newsroom that evening, seeing all like Baltimore on fire. 
And I do remember the Houston Rockets were playing a playoff game, but I don't remember anything else because, you know, I'm constantly on my phone making sure everybody's good, trying to figure out where everybody's at, you know, going to Instagram, going to Facebook, Twitter, say, okay, all right, are my family safe? You know, because you, people who were here, they saw what was going on, so they saw whether the media was blown out of proportion. But literally, I'm in the newsroom at ESPN, and I see Baltimore on fire, the CNN headline. So it was tough. Um, I will say there was a lot of uh, people. I want to give a huge shout-out to a guy named uh, Tom DeCordy, who was the producer of Sports Center at the time, who said, he asked me, he said, is your family okay? You know, he said, you're from Baltimore. Is your family okay? You know, and, and I appreciated that because it was something, you know, nobody really had to do, you know, but people were asking me, you know, just asking me how was the city, how was my family. So it was tough, though. I remember one of our professors, we were in our digital newsroom in our journalism school. Um, and I remember one of our professors had a live feed up of a local, um, of a local news, sta- a news station and they had their top up and we, I walked over to her and I saw that they, the cops were down um, in the area of Mondawmin near what, Frederick Douglas High, if I wasn't, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I just remember things slowly starting to unfold from there. And, you know, it slowly was becoming a thing from a journalism student standpoint. It's like, okay, well, the previous year, even 2014, we were a part of it, that, that walk, that, that protest and for Mike Brown. And this time it was like, no, like you gotta, you gotta get on the ground, you know, the second third. As a 21 year old at that time, I was like, oh, you know, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go out there. I'm ready to find out what's going on. We're ready to do this. And as things started to unfold, my mom called. She, she was working downtown at the time. She said, no, you're bringing your ass home. <laughs> and she came and she got me. Even my mentor, uh, Professor Milton Kansett, he looked at me and he said, yeah, you should go home. And, I, w- I just watched it unfold. She, like, she picked me up. We got out of it. Um, we, we went on um, to Baxter County, and she had, I mean, we had watched the coverage from home. And I, I don't know. I just, it, 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 there's a lot of things to unpack, which is why to this day, I do not call it a riot. I still refer to it as an uprising. Right. And, and you know, there are a lot of things that happened. Um, and I'm still just speaking in retrospect at the time of a, a 21 year old there were a lot of things i didn't understand back then me neither and you know it's it said a lot you know people will always look at the you know oh they just you know they were knocking out cop cars and they were doing this at the third they were knocking down things in their own neighborhoods and it's just deadly it's ridiculous and it's just crazy and i mean look for people that may have been true and then for others some people may have saw something else in it <clears throat> i mean people were tired people were angry um just because you saw something that you didn't like doesn't mean that the message still wasn't clear people were tired and frustrated and angry and when i see people still refer to it as a riot or i see people still you know you know just call baltimoreans animals or refer to them as things they uh, refer to them as things that are you know derogatory i am like you still don't get it i was 19 years old when freddie gray died and at the time, I had a lot of mixed reactions of the events that unfolded afterwards. I was sitting in front of the TV in my freshman dorm, watching all of this unfold just a few miles away. And I remember my phone blowing up with text messages from concerned friends and family members back home, 
asking how I was doing and making sure I was okay. A lot of my friends and classmates, particularly those that got to Morgan around the same time as me, echoed similar reactions. When Freddie Gray was murdered um, and being out there, like outside of the protests, like, yeah, I was at those, but what, what was the most impactful for me, the most impactful thing for me is getting in cars and going to go pick people up because they were stranded because the buses weren't running, um, feeding people, you know, going to local community meetings, meeting with like local leaders, like in the church and stuff like that. And like being holed up in those places, like strategizing on like what to do next. Like that was the most impactful part of it. But I think the scariest and most scarring part of it was being met with tanks and bullets for trying to give people food. Like that actually was nuts. Like literally we were, we were passing out sandwiches and stuff in the community and cops really had like their guns pointed at us like rubber bullet ready like what i'm really <laughs> like <laughs> yo i really what you want me to i'm it's me versus you like me and my sandwich versus your gun like are you dumb <laughs> right <laughs> like, yeah like are you dumb what what, does, what why why you know like it wasn't even a like yes we know quote unquote cops are bad like that was obviously yes a no but way. like it's so starkly was terrifying to be in the street again like this is after the protesting like this is people trying to clean up days later because mm-hmm. we were out there for like a whole two weeks two and a half weeks and the tanks still there and the guns are still there you think I'm gonna feed you? And I say no, and you wanna play like you about to sh- like absolutely not. I'm sorry, but no. Right. <laughs> so I think that was very interesting. I was in Selma at the time. Um we had a joint project with West Virginia University School of Journalism going on. And so me and some of our classmates were down in Selma doing some work chronicling the fiftieth anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And I remember first getting word that something might happen from one of my um, one of my pro fights. And I was like, no, there's no way. There's no way. And then it happened. And we were at dinner. And we're the only so Selma is a really small town. And the hotel we were at, we were one of like very the I think it was like 10 of us or 12 of us. We're, I think we're the only patrons in that hotel. So we like had the whole restaurant to ourselves and all that. And so we turn on the TV, we're watching CNN as things are popping off. And the folks from West Virginia, they had so many questions of us and not in a way that they're trying to like probe us or that they're trying to egg us on into something, but they were genuinely concerned. Like, what would you guys say led up to this? Like how they, they had all those questions for us. And it was really a good conversation. And it's not something that I would have ever imagined happening, watching something like that happen in real time and then engaging with folks and having a purposeful conversation about what our life experiences are and why things are the way they are in that manner, why people do feel the need to uprise and destroy property and so forth and so on. Like, it's not about the property. It's not about all that. It's it's about the voiceless getting tired. And so I wasn't in Baltimore at the time, but when we got back a couple of days later, like Baltimore is a ghost town. So only taxis could be on the road, basically. So like our professor's husband was supposed to take us back to campus. They wouldn't let him 
like curfew was like, no, you can't do that. So Baltimore was a ghost town. And those next few weeks, it was still like, damn, that really happened. But then where do we go from here? And as we see, like, there are still things that Baltimore deals with to this day that I would say comes from that day. So you have a constant reminder of not, you know, going against us again. Like, you see that in these major cities where the people are not afraid to take action. So that's another reason I love Baltimore, too, is because, like, nothing else. Niggas here got heart. (laughs) Like, they got heart. They got a lot of heart. If you don't learn anything else in your time at Morgan State, then you better learn this. Morgan history is Baltimore history. Its successes are Baltimore's successes, and its struggles reflect Baltimore's struggles. Morgan means everything to the people that went there, but so too is Baltimore. I was a part of a program or an internship program between the Morgan State School of Global Journalism and communication along with the Baltimore Sun. And we did a, a docu-series on Baltimore called This Is My Baltimore, where we interviewed various people throughout the city of Baltimore to show the diversity of the city. And um, I will say for me, it was a very eye-opening experience only because like my reference to Baltimore before Morgan was The Wire and then the Freddie Gray things that were happening. So I remember when I was on the news and I was like, oh my gosh, like Baltimore is wild. It's crazy. I really do hope like a change happens because these people are upset and clearly someone needs to rectify what has happened. Like, so like when we had the opportunity to go out there and record people living their authentic lives, you just, you, you just, you, I mean, for me, it was just like, wow, like not even wow, but it was just like, this is what I, low-key kind of thought it would be it's ordinary people helping other people get ahead it's the man down the street who him and his wife created a music studio uh a music studio type of program so kids can come after school and create music no matter how young they are to channel their pain to channel their creativity to channel what's going on in their lives it's the lady who is from nicaragua who creates baltimore and Baltimore theme art along with her homeland. It's the man who runs a, a homeless shelter for gay youth who's taking them all in because when he was younger, he didn't have that. He wants to get back to the city. It's like learning learning and navigating the city. It was great. Like You just get to see people for who they truly are. The city's accent and lingo are often imitated, but never duplicated. And I will say the one thing that kind of took me aback, um, you know, Baltimore slang. I'm not that fluent in it at all. Yeah, me neither. Well, not, <laughs> not originally. Yeah. yeah, I'm not originally from Baltimore. So I remember um, I, was whack- I was walking by two, two uh, young gentlemen one day. I think I said something. And their like, response was like, hey, yo, thanks, dummy. And I was like, Huh? Excuse me? Like, you know. I was like, wait, dummy. <laughs> but, like, it's a term of endearment. Right. It's like Mo in DC. Right. So, but when someone called me, hey, right, you know, I'm used to, like, Mo, like, I'm used to that, but I was like, dummy. That's a little harsh, don't you think? Like, right. but, you know, it was like, it wasn't a dig towards you. It's just how we say, like, thank you, friend, or I appreciate you. So, right. I'll be one of my funnier, like, Baltimore colloquialism moments. 
and of course like the language like don't call me a dummy what are you talking about like i'm in- <laughs> at first yeah at first that like what are you talking about like i was like yo you want to fight like what's up with you like like what what's what's up what's up with y'all like i'm not no like put your shit down let's fight. but right. but I, you know when you get acclimated and stuff like that honestly like i've seen more kindness here than i've seen anywhere else i've lived um and i've seen more community here than i've been anywhere else as well so like you know, it it definitely was an adjustment. Um, but once you get off the campus, once I got off the campus and really got into the community and really had people, like, teach me and people, like, integrate me into Baltimore culture. And then also, of course, like, dating somebody from Baltimore as well. Like, all of that was very helpful in really kind of understanding I like Baltimore as a whole. I went to a swap meet this past weekend. Uh-huh. And um, as we were looking through the clothing, the woman, she said, you know, where are you from? I said, oh, I just uh, moved here from Baltimore. I've been there for about two years. She was like, really? I love Baltimore accents. And I wish I would have gotten that on camera because accents are so beautiful and rich. They tell a story about where you're from. Uh-huh. Just to flat out say something that's ugly, it's kind of like, but do you understand it? Do you understand why they're saying to and you and like, all that stuff? Yeah. Do you understand all of it? It's it's amazing. It's the land of half and halves, chicken boxes, and crab cakes you're willing to kill for. It's the city with the strongest kneecaps and ankles in America. And if you've ever been to a party in Baltimore, you'll know exactly what I mean. Baltimore is also a very tough city. And that toughness oftentimes gets misinterpreted by outsiders. But as Tyler will tell you, it's something you simply have to adjust to. It took me a long time for um, for me to learn that the appreciation between Baltimore and I is a push and pull. Right. You know, it's not going to always be great. I'm not always going to love it, but it's all, it's not always going to love me either. And right. that's okay. <laughs> you got to deal with it. Like, you yeah. know, like Baltimore is where I found my voice, not just as a writer, but more importantly, a storyteller. And that's why I will always have love for it, regardless of highs or lows. It's one of the greatest cities in America, primarily because it's managed to keep its authenticity despite the changing world around it. And you know what? Maybe that's why the name Charm City fits so well. I love it because it's us. We have our unique accents to, through, do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that the fact like living in, you know, I lived in Bristol, Connecticut for two years, almost two years. Um, and it, the thing about Baltimore was it was us, you know, hard work. And you look at the Ravens. One of the things that people may remember was with both Super Bowl victories. The first one, they couldn't score a touchdown for four straight weeks. Um, the second one, they almost blew the Super Bowl with the lights going out. So all of our wins came ugly. You know, it wasn't pretty, but it was us. And that's Baltimore. You know, it's a beautiful city, but it may not be beautiful to everybody. It has ups and downs, but, you know, there's still a lot of truth here in Baltimore as far as with the people. Like, there's something that's authentic about Baltimore that you can't replicate somewhere else. You know, like, you know, you got to say, you know, only in Baltimore or, you know, the side of the third. But, I mean, that's, you know, that's just is what it is. Um, I, I, I truly, if I could, you know, if I could have my say, I don't think I would grow up anywhere else because, you know, once you make it here, you can make it anywhere.